This is an European Public Service Union podcast. Hello and welcome to another APSU podcast episode, your online resource for learning about public service uh, labor unions initiatives and projects, as well as the struggles and challenges they face. I'm Boyan Stanislavski, and I'll be your host. Today's co-host is Pablo Sanchez, APSU's communication and public relations officer. Hello, Hello Pablo. Hi. Hello. And, and now I would like to introduce Penny Clark, APSU's deputy general secretary, as our special guest on this episode of our podcast. Thanks a lot for taking the time uh, to be with us, Penny. Thank you, Boyan, and thank you for the invitation. Right. So uh, you have been APSU's deputy secretary for nearly a decade, and uh, it was unquestionably a hugely important decade for labor and and public services. So much has happened, and and the unions uh, have had to deal with a or confront a slew of in, in initiatives, attacks. Uh, not uh, the least of which are uh, TTIP and SETA. And now the entire world is dealing with COVID-19, which is, of course, uh, also the focus of labor unions' attention. But let's get back to the pandemic a little later on. Uh, I would like to start with this question. What are the most important struggles, initiatives, projects, mobilizations for you as a labor leader over the last decade? Hmm. That's a, a good question. Um, I'd actually like to go back a bit further, I think. But uh, if Please I do. were to take the decade, and actually 2011, which is a decade, was when we first had what was called um, a reflections paper, a non-paper from the European Commission uh, on trade. And in this paper, it basically um, was proposing to change the way the European Union had been negotiating public services and trade agreements. Um, and if, I actually can quote you a bit if you're interested, but it, it says that basically in some public services, uh, the European Union had offensive interests. And so they wanted to move away from, I suppose, a more traditional approach to safeguarding public services more or less excluding them from trade agreements to something where there would be more liberalization. And you know that um, since GATS, since the WTO, uh, the idea has been to build a momentum to liberalize basically everything throughout the economy. And it pretty uh, much happened, didn't it? Well, in trade, it pretty much happened. And going back before a decade, you could say that the unions did have many ideas and proposals to put fundamental labor rights into the trade agreements on goods. And there was discussion in the 80s and, and the 90s as well about how to do it. But there was always a lot of resistance. And I suppose from a kind of European perspective, when you buy goods in the shop, you know, you don't see so clearly how they are made, you know, if they're made in um, by very poor working conditions, or even forced labor or child labor or just poor working conditions. It's not visible in the end product. So, um, and then there was a lot of discussion that such protections might be also um, discriminatory in the sense that they were protecting Western industry and not giving a chance to developing countries. So there was all kind of debates about that. But in any case, um, services were more or less taken away from that discussion. And I suppose it was, well, basically this 2011, after stalling of, of, um, of 
GATS of, uh, you remember, you might remember the um, multilateral uh, agreement on investment, MAI, which also got blocked. Uh, kind of GATS was initiatives to go further than GATS, but they got blocked on the multilateral level. And then we had, so we had these bilateral trade agreements and the EU-Canada CETA was where some of this new kind of offensive language was tested. Uh, so that's when EPSO, I kind of, we picked up trade and I said, we need to go back a bit more because the reflection on the reflection paper was shaped by our experience of um, the liberalization of public services within the European Union. Um, so energy, you know, the kind of what we call the network industries, uh, so electricity, gas, uh, telecoms, transport, um, the services directive, you might remember 2006, which again was a sort of uh, horizontal idea to push to push liberalization and where EPSU and many others too, working with, with other, other unions and civil society, the E2C, where we managed to um, defend a lot of public space and a lot of, uh, we managed to exclude uh, um, collective agreements, for example, from being considered as, as regulations that need to be assessed and got rid of. Uh, we, we managed to exclude healthcare, however it's funded and provided from the services directive. So we had this, before. Uh, and so when we saw that the trade uh, paper from the commission from Carol de Gucht, who was the then trade commissioner who has a famous, well, I remember a famous, it's not actually more infamous uh, saying of his at a meeting once where we were complaining about some of the negative impacts of these very aggressive trade agreements. And he said, well, look, my job is just to open the market you know it's other people's job to sort out the mess that might come as a result of some people being winners and some people being losers i mean perhaps i'm simplifying a bit but that was basically what what he said and That's so we didn't think revealing. that was correct yeah. we didn't think it was correct that the eu canada water was um defined as an environmental service and this non-paper um, it talked about moving away from, you know, the, as I said, the traditional safeguards. And, uh, and then you saw e EU-Canada agreement also had other things like all the investor state dispute settlement, this ISDS, um, whole raft of other measures. Public procurement was suddenly... Sorry, this ISDS, uh, just to make sure that uh, for our viewers and, and uh, listeners, we're talking here about those courts where uh, uh, companies can uh, sue states governments right for then, uh, their not, investment not being uh, not materializing yeah they're not really okay. courts they're they're a kind of private tribunals it's a privatization right, exactly. of justice in fact and yeah companies of course they can be public companies right? it's not always so clear what is a company and what is a government and that's maybe something we can come into this sort of porous breakdown of the barriers between state and business you know which is also a, an, an issue but um, indeed, uh, the ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement, is like a separate route to uh, claim um, things which you think you should have got as, as business. And there were quite a lot from Eastern Europe because when we had the last en enlargement, many, many countries were also encouraged a bit by, by the European Union, but also from their own internal policies to, for example, um, privatize their health systems. So Czechoslovakia is one example. And this resulted in a, a very nasty ISDS case with the Netherlands uh, when the, uh, the government wanted to reverse 
the, the, the liberalization and to basically put a cap on the profits that were able to be made. Um, the, the company Acmea took them to court. And I think you can say that um, it's not a question maybe, I mean, obviously people who make real losses you know, need, need to have some kind of access to justice. That's not the question, but the, the problem is it's this idea of legitimate expectations. It's not actually any real loss. It's what you think you might've got under the market, but in public services, there isn't such a thing as a proper market. And also in public services, in our own European Union treaty, it says that you know competition is important, obviously, in some ways, but if there is a conflict, the public interest should trump. And I think that's been a clear line of EPSU. You know, there are sometimes conflicts, and in those conflicts, not one party should be sort of ring-fenced from having to have any negative impact, and all the negative impacts are on everybody else. Right. Uh, so and ISDS this... was in EU-Canada. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to comment that it, I, I think that this mechanism is ridiculous on its face in a sense that uh, any private company could just come up and uh, make up any uh, number saying that, well, we should have made this uh, money here or there and it's the fault of the government or of the local authorities or whatever uh, that we are not uh, making that profit, so we're taking you to this private court. Uh, and uh, everything is hidden uh, from the public. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is no uh, data being released. Uh, we can only judge, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, when we were trying, you know, activists, NGOs, union mm, activists, when they were trying to actually figure out how much a given country from our region has paid uh, and, and to what companies and for what this is impossible to figure out. Like you can only see some figures which are being paid out from the central budget to some companies, but you don't know anything else. Apart You're from, from Bulgaria, yes. Bulgaria yes, I'm is, from Bulgaria. is a good example. They've paid out a lot of money. Poland as well, and I agree. There's a lack of transparency. That's the difference. Also, when you start going outside, kind of the public sphere, is that um, different. There's no. I mean, m most public. You know, there's a kind of freedom of information. There is a public auditor. You have, you know, democratic committees that can, can, can do checks on on public spending and governments. But as soon as you get into commercial contracts, then it's a different ball game. And uh, you know, we have this is the trade secrets. This is the, the the, the nitty gritty of the contracts and and these kind of. Um, yeah, as, um, as I said, that they should not be legitimate expectations and the indirect expropriation is one thing. The EU right. backed back a little bit on the ISDS and once it started to feel the pressure, and that's actually an interesting point too, because when we first raised it, the, I mean, basically we're ridiculed. Every time we raise something at the beginning, we're ridiculed in sense it's not, you know, it's not an issue. And it's only when uh, the, the heat starts to be generated from as, as you kind of said too, the NGOs and the activists, and you know, we push, we push the item to be discussed, and then people say, "Ah, oh, yeah, well, maybe there is an issue." And actually, we've been thinking all along of maybe we need to reform it, you know, which obviously they hadn't. And then they come up with another proposal. And Pablo will remember this um, investor court system, ICS, which was a little bit, you know, a bit more judicial. The idea of maybe having perhaps less, you know, private people and some kind of judicial status for the arbiters. Okay, but so do, do you think that, that uh, it would be a fair uh, sum up to say that this was a, a decade of struggles and, and uh, attempts on the part of the uh, of EPSU and other unions, of course, to, to defend 
Uh, yeah, what... yeah, yeah. I think it is. And we had quite a lot of successes too. Huh? We managed to have water a little bit uh, outside. And I was looking also the other day at the resolution. With CETA, it was difficult because it was early and people hadn't understood any of these things so well. And there was a very, it was very difficult to get discussion at national level too on all these, you know, nasty acronyms and nasty things which nobody really understood. By the time we got to the trade and services agreement, which was a few years on, 2014, 15, 16, there was a kind of a bigger awareness. And actually with the European Parliament, who at that time had a rapporteur from the EPP, the centre-right, um, there was more openness, at least, to, to listen to the concerns. And if you look at the resolution, which was adopted from the Parliament in 2016, there's quite a lot of good things in it about also being able to reverse liberalisation commitments to, to, you know, if you can actually, if, if there are um, human rights concerns and, and whatever in trade agreements, that you should be able to have more sanctions, better exclusions for public services, what they call the, the gold clause to exclude public services, um, more more a kind of prerequisite, you know, saying that actually we shouldn't have any trade agreements if the other side is not signed up to at least the ILO core conventions, but the eight ILO core conventions, but actually going beyond that, you know, into decent work and very important for EPSU social protection, which is part of decent work, social security, healthcare, that these things have to be in place. But then that fizzled out with, you, you probably remember that when the, the Trump years, um, the US kind of pulled out of TISA. And uh, from that time, I don't think we've seen, I mean, the Mercosur agreement doesn't have not so much impact on, on maybe public services. Right. Um, but just to okay, okay, I mean, that, that when Penny was talking about that report, I remember the debate in the parliament and uh, they were poor. Uh, we had arguments like, uh, is Canada, you know, they help us during the war. Um, I assume the Second World War, but I mean, some countries were not involved, like Spain, Ireland, I don't know. Um, but it was very poor, it was very difficult. It's like, how how can you not sign an agreement with a country that has a leaf on the flag? I think things of, of this level. And uh, yeah, I'm not kidding. The, the, mm. the things were said. Okay. <laughs> um, and and to take it back a little bit, and more than ten years, I think you know the trade system globally has been uh, with fire on the engine, to use a metaphor, since the WTO protest in Seattle. And it's not so much the protesters that put the problem, the system at risk it was the contradictions and uh, some southern countries saying this investment is not good for us look at the trips uh, waiver on on the patents for uh, for COVID now but we, we at the time we're talking about aids and what we saw is that the european commission wanted to fix the wto and and just like being this this multilateral agreement after agreement because i mean the, the many that penny hasn't mentioned that we saw passing Singapore, Taiwan, uh, Vietnam, I mean, any other country they could see, New Zealand, Australia, they're just trying to, I mean, we, and they were basically all patterned to, 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 the, to the Canada. And Ukraine, uh, Moldova, yeah, Georgia, know, as well, uh, all the deep conferences. At one point, you would have wondered if the EU would not just recognize the Catalan independent uh, country just to sign a trade agreement and say, yes, we've, we've done it. Disclosure is a joke. Uh, but but there was a, there was a, a, a push at one at one a moment, 
and there was real serious opposition in the streets by all sorts of factors. You yeah, know. But can I just ask a question here to both of you? Uh, why was this? Is it like some people in the European Union or, I don't know, the global elite, if you like, they just got high on this, this thing that everything has to be liberalized, everything has to be dominated by trade agreements? No, it's well, yes, yes, and no. I think it, the idea is maybe the seeing wind changing and and the, and the need to adapt and and to lock in things which have already happened. You no, know, some some academics um, uh, say that you know the idea is not to necessarily advance liberalisation, but to make sure what has been liberalised so far can cannot go backwards. Which is why also CETA had this what they call this negative listing: list it or lose it. If you don't actually really defend then um, it's up for grabs. And actually looking back, you can see very few countries in, in the EU-Canada agreement kind of protected some of their energy distribution, which will be an issue now with the rising energy prices, you know, Absolutely. people wanting to, to, to actually intervene a bit more. We were very concerned about um, c further commitments and gaps that were made on old people's homes, residential care, which again, COVID has put a real spotlight on in terms of how this, this sector has, has suffered and been commercialized in, in a way which is leaving it very vulnerable and, and, and the people obviously who need these 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 care services but so it was testing it was testing it locking in what's happened testing it and I think also EU Canada was preparing for TTIP which was what was the real prize probably was to have this big whammy then coming up um, and with the TTIP the EU US trade agreement at some times when it all started to, to derail with the with the protests, there were there were people who said, "Well, why don't you do a TTIP light?" The Italian presidency, for example, at the time, you know, why why go for the whole thing? Why don't you just do something more modest? But they didn't want to. Uh, they wanted the really big big thing, and obviously that didn't work. And and now. Um, Indeed, it's gone back to, you can see with the US, going back to a bit by bit, you know, they'll take issue by uh, issue. Just, just to add on a little PS on this, because they did not want a trade agreement. They want a deregulation agreement, because there yeah. were studies that say that you and Canada have very little tariffs. There were like a few things like cheese and a few other things that you would actually need to, but then you would do, uh, you need to, to go further for, for making it easier the trade but then you can easily do um, an agreement without going into the liberalization of the water sector because if you really need to want to trade with uh, Canadian cheese and European cheese in Canada you don't need to privatize the entire water sector which is no. what the fact of what would happen so what why is that it was a deregulation thing and uh, push and to that is the standard that this push creates where there is no global standard. For instance, in all the artificial intelligence, digital commerce, e-commerce, everything that is the internet, there is no standard. There has been no agreement. And the first agreement that you would get will set the standard for everyone else. So, well, and that's that was- why, But that's why we say, I mean, these type of things, AI, reg indeed regulatory cooperation or um, health, you know, let's talk about a health treaty. These should not be in trade agreements at all. And, and Pablo, you're absolutely right. You no, know, if we can trade a lot of things without having these very, very wide ranging trade agreements. As an aside, there was a little rumor, I don't know whether it was actually true, that um, cheese was the bargaining chip to get the ISDS you know, European exports of cheese in return for accepting um, ISDS. So it's not as even if you're trading the same thing, uh, things are traded across. And the regulatory cooperation, which fits in with the 
the EU uh, kind of better regulation refit agenda as well, which, as I said at the beginning, I think we've, we've approached the trade agenda from also our experience within the EU um, and being, I should say, committed Europeans know of actually when we look at the EU treaties and see this wonderful phrase about, you know, the convergence, bringing together the peoples of Europe, when we see the things about the Commission being the guardian of the treaty, yeah, to have a uh, the whole treaty, including some of the, 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 the non-liberalizing bits, um, you know, there is a great uh, sense that we should make this construction better and the, the liberalization story, the trade story is, is a bit, it, I think, makes us sad in a way because you can see that this is the area where the competence has been key and where they've pushed so, so, so relentlessly, um, sometimes stopping because the pressure comes, but then it comes back again. Um, whereas we could be doing, we could be catalyzing all that energy into things that we really do need to to tackle like the climate like the you know the biodiversity like the the, the healthcare, like the clean water like the clean air you know this is where this is where we should be making a lot more strides but right but do you think totally uh, uh, difficult oh Sorry. i'm sure it is but uh i'd like to ask do you think uh that now after uh, uh, after years of those neoliberal experiments, uh, particularly in uh, in the sphere of public services, do you think that there's more of an awareness in the public opinion that certain things should uh, simply not be regulated by uh, the market, but they should be regulated by people and and by you know by elected officials, by governments, by workers? Uh, do you do you see that uh, shift in the general, um, well, in the public opinion? Yes, and I think there is uh, certainly we we get the the, the, the winds blowing. No, of change that people do see uh, after also after two thousand and eight and the economic uh, crisis and the austerity that followed. I think people do see the value of of, of um, good equitable public services, and I think we all see that when we're ill and we go and need care, that we're, it's very nice to be seen as a person who needs care and not with a euro or a dollar sign on our head or on the contrary, not as somebody who's not worth anything and doesn't need treatment. I think everybody recognizes that's the case. And um, there is maybe a lack of connection between, you know, what day-to-day -day life and then this, this sort of Pressure. Right, but I think I, I think the, the the pandemic and COVID is very important from that point of view, and I think it did make many people think because obviously uh, the question of uh, of the healthcare infrastructure in different countries in Europe uh, that was something that was uh, well tested on a massive scale now, and people were able to see with their own two eyes that yes, there you know if you don't have enough hospitals or if the mar if you let the market do the thing for you or for the government then you get uh, people you know lining up bef in front of the hospital's gates because they just cannot get in because there's not enough room there aren't enough beds there there is no there is not enough personnel uh, so i'm wondering whether this pandemic uh, paradoxically it's a terrible thing of course but perhaps it had this side effect of people becoming more aware of how important public services are and why should they be public, why they are even called public services. Because this is the only thing that within this market regime, so to say, makes life bearable, 
really. I mean, it's the healthcare, the school, the ed- education, public transit, and, and all the rest of it. Do I think, you agree I think, with I, such I think, I think you're absolutely right. The necessities of life, no? And um, But being aware is, is, is a first step, obviously, but we, we obviously all need to capitalize it and, 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 and push, you know, push our, our governments and our leaders. And, it, and it's not only an EU thing, eh? because obviously yeah, every, every government has its own, own, own trajectory as well and, and not all the, and has a lot of competence to, to shape its own, um, its own systems. What we're not so good at is maybe kind of targeting where the issues are. I mentioned to Pablo a nice example I thought in a, a recent paper where it, it described the, um, uh, the SUVs, these super ginormous cars. And it basically said that, you know, we've had ex- exponential growth also during the last decade, the last 10 years of these uh, SUVs, not only in rich countries, but increasingly in developing countries. And there were some figures which I can give you afterwards, but uh, to cut a long story short, if you would have replaced these by small cars, then we would be able to produce energy, you know, for millions of of people and and save a lot of, uh, basically make a lot of difference. But questioning, you know, the right of people to have these huge big cars when they don't need them is, is very difficult. And actually questioning anything to do with, you know, uh, so we say we want to have more basic goods and basic services for people. Uh, the next step is also to say, well, you know, w- why is it some people have so much and should they not be contributing a bit more? And this comes back At to, least, I suppose, yeah. this other angle of the, um, you know, tax justice, but also the differentials, you know, the, the income differentials between people. The fact that many countries without any pressure from anybody, yeah, have they have removed um They've lowered their taxes. They've property tax is virtually gone in, in most countries. Inheritance tax, you know, the income tax goes down. So and tax on business becomes more difficult. Let alone to talk about all the tax evasion and tax avoidance. So, you know, it's it's not it's not a fair discussion because we don't have you know we get less and less resources to put in our public systems. And people are kind of said, you know, that they can maybe have their private insurance and the private system, but in the end, you can't. And contagious diseases are a good reminder that everybody, whatever their background, is equally affected by COVID. And so, as you said, it's probably... And no uh, private insurance is going to save you from this. No, no, no. And um, we will have fallout too. If this continues, And of systems that rely heavily on private insurance are going to find it very tough because what's going to happen to the premiums that people have to pay? I mean, the only efficient way to do this is a collective way so um, yeah EPSI will be gearing well, up to being if, more... if you let them they would just say well some diseases we cure and some others will send them to this public uh, insurance default that you you know general That's taxation right. will cover which is like this kind of a uh, health scenario um, but again this is the type of thing that you you, you don't do like uh, uh, choice. Well, <laughs> it has to be good public insurance for everyone. That's, that's the point. If you're a private company offering insurance, you always have a choice. And that's happened too. Long-term care insurance in Germany is a good example. One moment when it's no longer profitable, you just say, boop, bye-bye, <laughs> and you leave it You leave it to somebody else. So what I mean from the, the collective thing and the efficiency thing is from our point of view as users, this is the only guarantee we have that we will actually be 
properly, um, you know, have proper, proper, proper protections in the future. This is our legitimate expectations, if you like, I think, as citizens. You no, know? for the rest, people, if it's, you know, people, if people have, if companies have a choice whether they provide it or not, then when the, when the going gets tough, they'll just disappear unless, uh, or metamorphose into something else. So it's no guarantee. The only guarantee is our own collective um, capacity to make sure that we treat meeting these needs that you said, you know, the water, the energy, the food, public transport, you know, that these have to be central and care, which we haven't mentioned. The fact that you and I, we want to have, you know, proper education for our, our, our next generations coming along. This you have to, you have to decide as a society you want to do. It. And we, we do have a social economy, yeah? a social market economy. That's what we're supposed to have. I don't think it was anyone's idea that the market and should be absolutely in everything. No, um, this wasn't. This right. Wasn't it might deal. not have been anyone's idea, but it <laughs> became <happened>? reality. <laughs> But that's a question of power, isn't it? I mean, they oh, had yeah, too oh, much yeah. power to do it. Huh? Yes. Maybe to mention very quickly, this this uh, report we're going to publish soon on um, um, privatization and central government. Uh, and it has some good examples of how governments, because that's a funny thing, trade, you know, the only thing that's excluded from trade agreements is things done in what they call the government authority. So it's like real core central government tasks but this report shows you actually these are all well in some countries often given to private companies so the consultancies who are increasingly advising governments on their policy work and, and also so I not think even it, their own public administration is doing it they've outsourced it it's disgraceful. Right. Or, or worse i mean sometimes public administrations like in bulgaria for example where i'm from uh you have this kind of hidden privatization process like for example uh you, you, the, the the hospital is public but everything inside is is private like part of the personnel uh, comes from you know some other companies they are not employed directly by uh by the facility uh some of the uh of the equipment is leased from you know commercial companies uh, and also uh you have to pay out of your own pocket for certain procedures it, not the whole sum but say 80% 30% 50% and you know uh on paper in theory the healthcare system is public and it's free for everyone well, but it's like a motorway you know, yeah. they just build a motorway and everything that goes around is a concession to someone. Um, but to go back to this uh, report that Penny was mentioning is is actually telling that uh, as far as we're concerned for the first time, this is also self-publicity for a future podcast, of course, mm -hmm. but um, uh, the UK and Norway, uh, so two very different sets of countries, if, if you think about it, are spending more money in consultancies uh, than actually on wages in the of the civil servants of the core of the of the state, so they're they're really um, giving money and the, the consultancies. We're not talking about some random group. It's like Deloitte, McKenzie, Price Waterhouse Coopers. The very same. They actually they deplete the state of um, finances by telling companies how not to pay taxes. Uh, so that that's that's. How the revolving this, doors as well, uh, eh? the revolving doors. That this is the politicians that end up in those companies, telling those companies that work for them, and that those uh, the consultancies they advise everyone else how not to pay the state. So it's kind of the the, the perfect storm to end up with, like the the state building like the the, the structure of hospitals, i.e., uh, four walls, and then uh, running into this. U.S. society at the end of the day, 
while in I the US the debate is, the, is going in the other direction quite we're generalizing uh, a little bit and obviously we have good 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 examples too I mean we have the right to good administration also in the Charter of Fundamental Rights and you can see many you know it's not all everything is not all black and white which is sometimes makes it more difficult for us because sometimes the liberalizers you know everything is black and white and us we can see you know as a nuance and in this example you can blame both if you like the the governments and the companies but it's in a way it's just it's just everyone to blame but the state of course is not only the central state you know it's also local government and you know EPSU has a lot of members in local government and local government is important in, in this discussion about the relationship between if you like public and private and how we manage public services because a lot of public services are managed by by local local government and Barometers often show that people have more trust in local government because it's closer, but also probably because there's maybe less scope for some murky, murky things sometimes and maybe easier to control. So I think also when we're envisaging how, you know, the future of our public services and the future of, I mean, we're talking about trade, but why do we, we want to keep, keep them out of trade agreements because we want to do something good with them and we don't want the trade to kind of pollute. But obviously we... The liberalizers maybe stop the European Union and, and the member states having this other discussion about how to make our public services better and, you know, more, more transparent, more democratic, more equal, um, you know, more quality, uh, all these things which we want to do. Exactly. Right. And uh, we uh, ran totally out of time. So on this note... Oh, yes. Uh, on this uh, note, I would like to thank you both for participating in, uh, in our program. And I would like to ask uh, or invite uh, the viewers and the listeners to visit the APSU uh, website, apsu.org, and also to subscribe to APSU's Telegram channel. Thank you very much. Stay healthy and keep fighting. Thank you. This is an European Public Service Union podcast.